standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. And fret ye not, despite me talking here, it's not me talking in there. Instead, we handed over the reins to the excellent Lucy Nicholl, mental health advocate extraordinaire and author of the frickin' brilliant A Series of Unfortunate Stereotypes, which actually started out as a regular standard issue column. Lucy's book is well worth your time and money and is an exercise in empathy that is delivered with warmth and humour. We've all got mental health and sometimes it gets poorly, so her book really is for everyone. You can buy it by checking out the link on Lucy's Twitter. You'll find her at Lucy underscore Nickel, N-I-C-H-O-L, 78. Give her a follow while you're there. For this, Chops, Lucy wanted to focus on some of the very many stigmas that still surround mental health and what we can do to get them to jog on. And so she's chatted to four women about their very different experiences with mental health. Anna Foster is talking OCD. Claire Easton is chatting social anxiety. Porna Bell talks about her late husband's addiction and the unhelpful stereotypes of drug users were forever seen in the media. And finally, Hope Virgo explains the issues around anorexia and why her hashtag dump the scales campaign is a lifesaver. They are all well worth a follow on Twitter. Anna is at Lady Anna Foster. Claire is at Clary Love. That's C-L-A-I-R-E-Y Love. Porna is at Porna Bell. That's P-O-O-R-N-A Bell. And Hope is at Hope Virgo. If you've not caught our latest gig cash yet, then please do, because it is, well, it's maverick and ridiculously entertaining. As Hannah and Sarah chat to comedian Louisa Armelan, Hollywood star and stand-up Janine Garofalo, and Britain's answer to Sue Pollard, Sue Pollard, because believe us, there's only one Sue Pollard. As with all of our podcasts, you can find it on Acast, iTunes, Spotify, and all sorts of other podcast providers. But for now, here's Lucy Nicholl. Thanks, Lucy. Hello, it's Lucy Nicholl here. Today, I'm talking all things mental health with a focus on stereotypes and stigma. But I'm not doing it on my lonesome because today I'm chatting to four amazing ladies who each have a story to tell. Now I'm going to chat with Anna Foster, who has experienced quite extreme OCD. For anyone who doesn't know, that's obsessive compulsive disorder. But there's quite a bit of stigma around OCD and it can be quite misunderstood. So Anna, do you want to tell us a little bit what it's really like living with it? Yeah, I've had it since I was probably about six years old. And it sort of goes through various different manifestations. So to begin with, it can be you know, I've got to jump in and out of bed six times to make sure everybody will be all right. And then I've got to jump in and out of the shower. And if somebody says a bad word, then I've got to, I've got to clean myself of that. And it it isn't about tidiness. It was, it was never about tidiness with Mm. me. I'm the messiest person, one of them (laughs) alive. It morphed from when I was seven. It changed from keeping everybody else safe to then keeping me safe. Mm. Then I had you, you call them themes in OCD. So then I had the AIDS theme where I was, mm. you know, I'd done something at university. I'd slept with somebody I shouldn't sleep with at university, as an awful lot of people <laughs> do. <laughs> yeah. um, but then for me, it became an obsession. Uh, oh, and then it was homosexual OCD, which is where, you know, I haven't got a homophobic bone in my body, but it was, I'm, what if I'm gay? What if I'm gay? I th- I'm gay, I'm gay. What if I'm gay? But I'm not gay. Almost kind of like mm. um, mm-hmm. just crazy themes. And then... It can be anything. Lots of people have trans OCD. Where, what if I'm? Tra- what if I am trans? No, that's not because you're transphobic. It's just something which isn't related really to you, but it's just this kind of obsessive thought. Yeah. And I would be doing all sorts of things to get rid of the thought. And then when I had my first baby, I started having sort of maternal OCD, which was harm OCD. I was terrified I was going to harm my baby. 
quite a few people have experienced oh, that one. Yeah. And I've got to tell you, there is nothing, nothing worse than that. Yeah. It's When you're somebody that's quite a soft, kind of sympathetic, empathetic person, to have those thoughts, it's, I think you call it cognitive dissonance, where those kind of thoughts are so abhorrent and different to you as a personality. And then I was doing masses of obsessions and rituals to get rid of it mm. to the point where I just, I didn't even think I wanted to to be around anymore really it was that bad so yeah. Um, yeah so so it's an awful lot more than than like like you've mentioned tidiness doesn't even play a part in your OCD and absolutely yet, not a lot of people seem to associate yeah OCD with tidiness or being a little bit like Monica from Friends so yeah. how do you feel about that sort of conversation that still takes place it's weird you know because even some of my really good friends and um, one of my really good friends is is very tidy and she's got a little thing in her house saying obsessive compulsive mm. something or other and i don't want to be uh, i don't want to be offensive towards her i don't want to upset anybody yeah but at the same time i think i ended up in a mental health crisis center where i had to see somebody every 4 hours because i literally had suicidal thoughts constantly yeah i was so so poorly and if somebody said to me do you want to skydive or do you want to go back to that that first week in november 2016 which is when my crisis hit and by the way it had been 36 years in the coming i'd rather skydive anything than go back to that that's how bad it was yeah what i want is awareness not necessarily for people that haven't got it but more for people that have got it that then understand what it is and how to get help Mm mm-hmm Absolutely. But you were, like like you've just mentioned, you you were about six years old when it first started. Obviously, at that age, it's hard to really understand what's going on. So when did you first, although some of the obsessions and rituals started then, when Mm -hmm. did you first realise that this was perhaps not normal behaviour? Well, I remember being very, very tired when I was about seven or eight. And I said to my mum, I've got to do my rituals. I've got to jump in and out of bed. And she said, you've got to do what? And I could see, because I was at a funny little boarding school, but like St. Mm. Trinian's, and we were, all in, we were all in a dormitory. And in fact, there was another girl who, who did it as well. So, you know, we're not... Right. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I remember thinking, it isn't quite normal that I'm jumping in and out of bed. And, and I knew even at that time, we used to laugh about it in the dormitory. They used to say, oh, there she is with her magic thinking. But it was the 80s and mental health was yeah. not... It just wasn't really discussed. And when I was diagnosed with it, they gave me a bloody rubber band to like flick... <laughs> and this was a psychiatrist. Right. You know, he said, flick that, and then the thoughts will go away. So, well, that didn't work. It just, yeah. it was worse and worse. And just over the years, it, it just progressively just became all encompassing. And Flicking rubber bands don't work, but no. there are a few different treatments and therapies for OCD. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting ones that I've, I've read a bit about is exposure therapy. Is that yeah. something you've experienced? It is the gold standard for getting better and I feel really really passionate that people with OCD you know I think sometimes they can think oh if I go for hypnosis or if I do this or you know all these other things will work but honestly unless you expose yourself to your Mm. fears to your thoughts where literally I have had to say things there was words that I hadn't said in 20 years right yeah there was like I had a terrified one of biting people and I was thinking and I bite somebody what if I bite somebody what what if I bite somebody and grab them and then bite the finger off and swallow it and I mean how ridiculous is that Mm -hmm. yeah um and I I would literally be made to to think about it to imagine it to write it down 
I want to bite somebody's finger. You know, I'd have to say things like that. Go through the whole oh, thought process like, of completely it. Completely yeah. expose yourself to the absolute nth degree. And it is really, really hard. And I, I know I can still do it better. And I've been in therapy for two years now. Mm-hmm. So I know I can do it better. But exposure response prevention is the thing that will work for OCD. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it just is. You've got to do it. And I see sort of young people with OCD and going to see therapists who aren't maybe OCD trained. Yeah. And they're not getting the right treatment. Mm. It's, it's really tough, mm. but you've got to do it. Cause it's something these days, actually, isn't it, to kind of mind the... The internet for, I suppose, is, is is looking at the different types of treatment because patients these days should have more of a say in, yeah. in the kinds of treatment and should be able to request to help. Yeah. So um, if there's anybody listening right now who is potentially experiencing OCD but yeah. hasn't had any diagnosis or anything yeah. but is concerned, what would you say to them? I would say definitely go and get help now and ask for talking therapy mm-hmm. but I would say make sure that, that ask don't be afraid to say I would like somebody who is OCD trained yeah. and go in saying I know what exposure response prevention therapy is go in with a little bit of knowledge mm-hmm. you know because I think sometimes you can be bamboozled by health mental health professionals and some of them are utterly brilliant and I've seen some brilliant you know recently my therapist Mark up in Northumberland is incredible but don't be bamboozled into thinking that you have to do something a different kind of therapy when you know it isn't quite right yeah for OCD you know exposure response prevention and ACT is another one which is acceptance commitment therapy and it's accepting your thoughts so in a way it's it's a similar thing to to being exposed to them yeah um yeah because that's what exposure is really it's about acceptance as well absolutely Um, and I'm not saying that mindfulness and all those things don't help because they really really help actually for OCD mindfulness is is extremely good Mm -hmm. um and there's a guy called John Hirschfield I think it's John um who has written a book the mindfulness OCD workbook which is brilliant but also I found the mental health community and the OCD community online yeah is brilliant so have a look as robert bray is a guy who's absolutely brilliant to follow and is this on twitter on twitter, on twitter. Yeah. yeah the ocd stories yeah. is phenomenal so that's a guy called stuart stuart ralph who set up this ocd blog a couple of years ago and he gets to speak to some of the best minds in mm. the world and um, there's a guy called paul slavskovskis who's in, an english professor but there's loads of americans as well yeah shayla nicely from beyond the doubt and all of these people You'll go on there and you'll have a look and you'll go, I'm not alone. Yeah. And the thing is with OCD is that you can get better. Mm-hmm. And I honestly thought I'd never get better. I was so consumed with these thoughts. I just mm-hmm. couldn't bear to be in my own head. I did take drugs as well, mind, but a bit of fluoxetine here and there. Yeah. <laughs> but it's what but that help. Well, that it's helps a personal approach, isn't it? Like yeah. you said, that if in terms of talking therapies, there are some specific therapies yeah. that are great for OCD. Yeah. And then everything else that goes around that, I guess, it relates yeah. to who you are as a person. And some, yeah. for some people, drugs work. For some people, they don't. Yeah. And like you say, mindfulness and self-care and all of those and things And exercise, actually. Well. bit of... Because I was so poorly at one point, I couldn't walk. For six weeks, I didn't even walk my oh. dogs because and I love my dogs, because I couldn't bear my own company. I couldn't bear to be thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just just before we finish, I know that you have told me before a little story about one of your dogs called oh. Hope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell us how, how you and Hope met. Okay. So I had got really, really poorly at the end of October, beginning of November. 
And one of the reasons I knew I was really poorly was I lost about a stone and a half in weight. I, st- I stopped going to a well-known baker's on the way, <laughs> on the way home for work for pasties. Oh. Anyway, about six weeks after my kind of initial crisis and ending up with the mental health centre and all of that kind of thing, I thought, oh, it's Christmas time. I feel like a, I feel like a Christmas mince pie. And I thought, oh, that means I might be getting better. So I went into this well-known bakery. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there was a massive queue, really busy. And I got to the front of the queue. And then all of a sudden, I just saw this little shot of, of orange come flying into the bakery. And this woman went, that's just nearly getting ran over. And I went, well, pick her up then. It was this <laughs> tiny little dog. Aww. Nobody picked her up. So I picked her up and... She didn't have a chip. She was covered in fleas. She smelled very strongly of cigarettes. She had a bite on her nose. She was this tiny little thing that looked like a fox. And I just rang my husband and I said, "Um, I'm just bringing home another dog because we've already got a massive Vimarana just for one night. (laughs) And two years later, (laughs) she's still in my bed. And um, it's funny because I went late to the bakery because I was chatting to another girl at work who was having mental health problems. And I I always think to this day, because you gave that girl time, you found hope the dog because if I'd gone earlier and I hadn't yeah. given her that time you I might not have found have hope. hope so yeah. the whole like t- I thought oh that's a message about talking about mental health but yeah she's my hope because yeah I feel like we give each other hope that's so, so lovely yeah. oh well um thank you so much for sharing your story with standard issues really really interesting if anybody wants to sort of follow your stories and things yeah um is it instagram or twitter i'm on both so on on twitter i'm at lady anna foster mm-hmm. not a lady at all <laughs> <laughs> i like pints and chips um so no it, yeah so it's lady anna foster on twitter and on instagram it's positively you and anna Lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. Hello, Jen here. Sorry to interrupt your uh, podcasting joy time. (laughs) Okay, having a wank. (laughs) This isn't scripted. Can you believe it? (laughs) If you'd like to see us as well as hear us, and I'm quite sure you do, why don't you get yourself along to one of our gig casts? We've got some absolute bangers coming up, including on November the 20th, We don't think we hear enough from men in the world, so we've invited a few along to help celebrate International Men's Day. And those men are Richard Herring, Colin Jackson and David Morrissey. And then for our final London gig of the year, we've got a fantastic lineup of Lolly Adafopi, Felicity Ward and Laura Bates. And that's on December the 16th. So get yourself over to our page on Sarah's website, which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. You can find out all about what we've got coming up in our gigs and how you can get tickets. I'm speaking with Claire Eastham, who is a campaigner, a very successful blogger and a public speaker. She actually lives with social anxiety. In many people's minds, that's probably a little bit of a contradiction. How can you be a confident, successful public speaker who has crippling social anxiety? But I think that's a bit of a myth, really. Claire, do you want to tell us a bit about that? How does social anxiety affect you? Sure. I mean, yeah, the irony of someone with uh, having social anxiety doing public speaking is not lost on me at all. And that always kind of makes people laugh when I say that. But I think it's testament to, first of all, the kind of skills that I've picked up uh, over the years and the lifestyle changes that I've made. Social anxiety is not as straightforward or as kind of clear cut as people think. My social anxiety tends to stem from fear that people think I'm an idiot. You know, they think I'm a loser, like these kind of preconceptions that deep down I know they don't have, or at least I hope they don't. 
but it's not a rational disorder so you can't expect rational things like you know don't worry about it to work whereas public speaking i'm in control of the situation i've written down what i want to say i've practiced it i'm passionate about it so it just doesn't affect me in the same way so when did you first notice that these thoughts and feelings and panics that you were having were not normal and were actually indicative of a problem actually when i was eight gosh when i was hiding in the cloakroom well the place where we threw all the coats at one of my like a family party Mm -hmm. i think it's because children through no fault of parents it's just a society thing you know that are kind of expected to perform you know when you arrive all the attention goes on to them yeah. And it's a kind of, it's a lot. I, I often think that now with when my uh, best mates bring their kids around, they were like two and three, and everyone's like, hello, and it's like, all oh, this attention is thrown that way. And if you're kind of, I was quite a shy kid, mm. it's, I would like freeze like a rabbit in the headlights, and I didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do. So, and people would react negatively to it, like, oh, she's so shy, isn't she? Oh, she doesn't, she's, she really should come out of her shell. And I kind of absorbed that which Mm. eventually kind of grew into a disorder, thinking I'm not normal. Mm, Yeah. Unfortunately, I can also relate to it. It uh, affected my childhood as well. I was very shy. And I remember, I think I'm probably the only kid that wouldn't go onto the stage at the Sooty Show at the theatre because I got picked out and it was so exciting, but I I was so scared. So it affected my life. But how how has it affected your life growing up? Because I think you're, you're 30 now, aren't you? I'm happy to say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so obviously when you're in your late teens and, and your 20s, a lot of socialising and stuff, how, how how did it affect your social life? Do you know, it came out surprisingly. I did the thing you should never do and I white-knuckled it. Mm-hmm. And I almost learned how to behave normally. I'm quite good at observing people. And I was like, all right, I suppose that's what you're supposed to do in this situation. And I just repressed it, kept it really, 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 really buried. And I was unfortunate enough to have a very close group of friends I still have. During secondary school in particular, the first real signs that started to show was when I was about 14 and I would blush mm. for no reason. If someone said my name, if any kind of attention was directed my way, I would turn the colour of like an angry tomato. <laughs> and now I know that was my body's way of saying we're uncomfortable and if you're not going to say it, this is the only way it's going to come out. Yeah, I managed to get through that aspect. Then I developed a tremor, nausea. It was a lot of physical symptoms over the years, really, when I kind of just kind of forced myself to focus, like, on my academic studies or going out to parties or, you know, hanging out with friends. Just, like, just keep it all inside and eventually it'll be okay, which never works. (laughs) Have you kind of turned that around then? Is Well, I suppose that's what you're doing with your blogging, isn't it? Do Do you feel that speaking more openly helps you as well as the people who read about your experiences? Absolutely. Since my nervous breakdown when I was, gosh, I would have been about 25, Mm. I've never hit it since. I used to tell people exactly how I'm feeling, whether sometimes that can make them uncomfortable, hopefully not, but I'm more than happy to say, I'm sorry, I feel very anxious at the moment. Can I just have five minutes? Like, you know, in the same way that I might say, I'm sorry, I feel a bit sick. Can I just have a minute to see if it calms down a little bit? I no longer see the problem in admitting that, you know, something's going wrong internally with my brain, you know, brain, body, same respect. That's what I always say. And 
I know how much harm I did by keeping it a secret and I never want to do that again. And brilliantly, it helps so many other people as well. You've got a huge number of followers on social media and your blog, haven't you? So... I do all right. I know, isn't it, though, like, a complex of, like, oh, my God, somebody else has got so much more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the issue with anxiety, as we know very well. But you've also blogged about, because you're married now, and you've blogged about some of the awkward dates that you had before you got married. Do you want to tell us a few funny stories there? Dating must be a difficult one for people with social anxiety. In the early days, I think a lot of people, you know, the Dutch courage thing, you know, if you can have a drink, it can take the edge off. And that's something I didn't rely on to a dangerous extent, but it did help. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget on our first date, my husband and I, I, my hands were shaking because I was that nervous. And I was like really, really worked up. And I knew if I could just have like a drink of wine, like it'd it'd be okay but he wouldn't stop talking to me and I was like will you stop looking at me for a second you selfish like get back. <laughs> <laughs> I remember he, so I thought I can't reach for it because if I reach for it my hands is gonna is gonna shake and I remember he bent down to tie his shoe and by the time he came up I'd actually downed half the glass <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, awkward situation. I, I, I was exactly the same. I had a crush on my now husband for three years from afar, and for those three years, he thought that I absolutely hated him. <laughs> yeah, isn't that common? I was the same. I was really, he said, like, God, you were standoffish. Yeah. Like, I wasn't at all. I just was like, just can we just have a conversation, but maybe just don't look at me. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I, I, I would run away in the supermarket aisle if I bumped into him because I couldn't face <laughs> yeah. having to make conversation, even though I fancied the pants off him at the time. But, well, what about some top tips for people who are listening? Because I'm sure that there are a lot of people who go through these sorts of worries. And I think you know it can impact some people just in terms of a little bit in everyday life it doesn't stop them from living their life but they may want to use some of your tips to to manage that but also I'm sure there are many people listening who have an anxiety disorder and would like some ideas of how they can proactively try to manage some of that. I had a talk for England about this because it's such a spectrum it depends on the severity so shall we okay I'll go for people who are already living with social anxiety Mm if you haven't already go been to see your GP obviously do that a top tip would be before you go write down your symptoms and I mean physical and emotional and mental because it's hard to be coherent because it's a very vulnerable situation yeah. so if you write it down if you go off track or you feel like you're not getting the point across I literally handed my list to the doctor and said this is what I'm experiencing and it just helps them make a better diagnosis mm. another one is Find someone you can talk to about it. It doesn't even have to be a shrink. Sorry, a therapist. I call them shrinks. <laughs> uh, the Samaritans are open 24 hours a day. If you can talk to a friend, don't expect them to fully understand what you're going through, but they will listen. And if yeah. you can liken it to a physical condition, that's even better. So I would say this is how I feel, kind of in the same way that do you remember the other week when your back was hurting no one can see it but it's there and it's affected me this this way and be kind of as specific as you can about the support that you would need from them in the short term whether that's I know you really wanted to go out but is there any way you could come around here and we can have tea and cake instead it's because if you kind of don't ask you don't get my grandma told me that and I think it's it's a dynamite advice (laughs) absolutely what we call it in Newcastle is shy bairns getting out (laughs) nice 
that's even better. <laughs> well, Claire's book is full of absolutely loads of tips and she shares all of her experiences. So um, have a look for it. Did you just say tips or tips then? I'm sure I'm quite curious. <laughs> tips. Tips. Because I was say people would be very disappointed if it was the last one. <laughs> Claire's book is full of lots of tips and tricks to manage social anxiety and she shares a lot of her own personal experiences as well and I'm sure it'd be helpful for so many people. It was certainly helpful for me when I read it. So if you want to grab a copy, it's called We're All Mad Here and it's available at all good bookshops and online. And also check out Claire's blog, which is All Mad Here online and that's where it all started and that blog has now been shortlisted for the third time for the Mind Media Awards which take place the end of November so good luck Claire. Yeah I feel like I'm going to become more like Leonardo DiCaprio you know that's the one thing we have in common like after about six nominations I might get there. Oh (laughs) you're doing so many amazing things and and you know it's helped so many people it's certainly helped me so you're already a winner. No, it's so true. It's an absolute pleasure and an honour and a privilege to do. So thank you. Thank you, Claire. Hello, Mickey here. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure, but I just thought, as you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. Here's Lucy with Porna Bell. Thanks for joining us, Porna, on the Standard Issue podcast. Firstly, I think what would be really nice is if you could just tell us all about your wonderful husband, Rob. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. So Rob was a very tall, broad-shouldered Kiwi man, really avid gardener, so loved um, spending time outdoors. Also a huge fan of nature and was a science journalist at the same time so worked you know quite a lot across environmental science but also despite all of that being you know hugely cerebral and clever massive punk rocker you know real, (laughs) um, (laughs) like real sort of you know went to the anarchist bookshop in in london and was very very interested in um in that entire scene as well wow wow i think my first boyfriend was massively into punk rock i remember him having to shave his green hair off for his mother's second (laughs) wedding but that's another story oh so he he sounds like he was amazing And, and you two were obviously crazy in love from from what i've read in in your book he was like your soulmate wasn't he yeah absolutely I mean if you know I'd ever we were introduced actually through a mutual friend um because I think if I'd probably seen him on a dating app I don't really know that I would have swiped right because, <laughs> um, <laughs> did he have the punk but, hair was that it <laughs> um he, he had a skinhead I think at the time oh, but right. it's just yeah we I think beyond all of that you know we had some huge similarities but also huge differences But yeah, I mean, there was a hell of a lot of love and understanding in our relationship. Oh, it wasn't all plain sailing. When when did you first realise that Rob was struggling, that that, that he had a a problem? 
I knew that he had depression because he told me that fairly on in our relationship. And But when it came to the addiction part of his diagnosis, I didn't really know or even believe that that was going to be a thing. I mean, I knew that he'd dabbled in drugs recreationally before we got together and, and was part of a fairly active social scene. But, you know, we got together. I told him that I don't do drugs. Uh, that just wasn't part of my lifestyle at all. Mm. And he was very uh, reassuring about the fact that he'd been thinking of quitting altogether anyway so you know this was a perfect time for him to be able to do that but when we got married and I think I, I just wasn't so caught up in you know things like organizing the wedding and I just moved in with him and all of that and things actually just settled down I just noticed that yes there were things that you could definitely attribute to depression so feeling quite withdrawn uh, dealing with insomnia you know finding it quite difficult to do really small tasks like like going shopping um, mm. at the supermarket, but there were there was a bizarre edge to some of it that just couldn't really be explained away by depression. And Rob was a very, you know, uh, I mean, he he had a personality on him, and you know, so if he was trying to get your attention away from something so like let's say he had done something and I would be a bit suspicious about it so I don't know like a random trip to the corner shop or just wasn't answering his phone yeah um he'd kind of come out with an explanation like either laughing at your concern so you know just like oh don't be so silly of course it wasn't that it was this instead or he just wouldn't really, would somehow make a joke and then not really address it at all or not really give it the space in the conversation. Mm. But increasingly, I just noticed, you know, there were lots of weekends spent in bed, but not necessarily in a depressive sort of way. Like he actually seemed, you know, physically ill and sweating, which now obviously I know are signs of withdrawal. But, but yeah, I definitely noticed it ramping up. And I think when he eventually told me that he had been struggling with a heroin addiction for three years without me knowing about it a lot of that was you know we had gotten to that point where he finally confessed what was going on just because I think it had reached a point where he just couldn't really conceal it anymore because his behavior had just I think had reached its peak yeah yeah and and I'm sure many people have said to you how how could you not know but I think yeah. there's a lot of stereotypes around heroin users and there is no kind of typical look of a, of a heroin addict obviously what why do you think it is such well probably the most stigmatized of all drugs I think it's because of well you have depictions on tvs which are very very polarized that everyone remembers train spotting you know as a film yeah. and in my mind watching that film as I was growing up that just cemented an idea for me of what an, a heroin addict looked like and behaved but also with heroin, there is an aspect to it where, you know, you associate it with the person that snatches a grandma's handbag to pay for their drugs or resorts to crime, etc., etc. You just kind of have it as this idea of it being the worst possible drug that anyone could ever use. And in some ways, you know, it's a formidable drug. Like there's no there's no getting around that in that once you are addicted to it, it is extremely hard to enter into sustainable recovery and I have mm. nothing but respect for people who manage to be able to do that because of how the drug works and how it affects your brain yeah. but in terms of the impacts that it has upon a person when you compare it to drugs like alcohol and cocaine etc etc there's no there's no hierarchy in terms of how one drug affects you versus the other I mean it's all accompanied by 
chaos and by people's lives crumbling if their addiction spirals out of control. But it's got this reputation as being the worst drug possible. Actually, when I unraveled a lot of this, once I knew what was happening with Rob, I just thought, actually, hang on a minute. You know, drugs, alcohol and tobacco kill way more people and cost the NHS way more money than all of the Class A drugs combined. So why aren't we being taught about things like how damaging alcohol and tobacco, for example, could be versus heroin, which is a drug that, I mean, don't get me wrong, by no means am I advocating for it in any way. But I'm just saying that the level of horror with which we greet heroin is not the same level of horror with which we greet alcohol, despite alcohol being something that costs the economy, costs people's lives in a much bigger and impactful way. Yeah. So so there's probably yeah. something around what's culturally, socially acceptable and, and, and what's legalised and the industry behind all of that. Addiction in itself is very stigmatised. It's something that people really don't understand. And, you know, many people think that, you know, somebody who who has an addiction is enjoying it or, or, you know, just parties too hard and their life has become chaotic because of that kind of lifestyle choice. But it's it's not about that. Why, Why do you think we struggle with empathy when it comes to the disease of addiction? I think it's because we moralise it. We don't moralise any other condition in the same way that we do with addiction. And definitely before I knew that Rob was an addict, I mean, I'll, I'll hold my hand up and say that, you know, I thought people who were addicts were people who didn't really care about the people around them, their friends and family that were weak, that were doing it because they were having a good time and didn't want to give up having a good time for sobriety, which now that I know what I know about addiction, I'm just horrified. But I am also increasingly horrified at the realisation that actually the majority of people tend to hold that view, you know, because there is a lack of information around what addiction actually is. And a big, big problem is that you're taught about the danger of drugs at school, but you're not taught about the wider context, for example, and why someone might get addicted to a drug. And I think the biggest learning point for me was around the idea of shame. And so that by the time someone who calls themselves or considers themselves to be an addict, that idea of having fun with it has long gone. And what has been Mm. replaced in its stead is shame, which is something that is incredibly hard to make your peace with. And the more the things escalate, for example, with your loved ones around what you're putting them through, the guilt of all of that. I mean, ironically, that's actually what fuels a lot of relapses, because it's basically using the drug, which has now become a coping mechanism to deal with all of the tough stuff that's going on in life. And people who are less empathetic might say, okay, well, you know, but yeah, that's where they've got it wrong. You know, they should just stop using. But that's just not how an addiction works. And I feel incredibly sad that for a lot of what Rob and I were going through, especially at the beginning, I just felt I couldn't tell anyone. I mean, I told my sister the day that he told me he was an addict. For 10 months, I didn't tell my best friend. Like, she, my best friend was the second person who probably knew. And having to keep all of that inside while also dealing with Rob's recovery was just, it was one of the hardest things I think I've ever gone through. So the shame and the stigma around addiction really isolates not just the person who's dealing directly with it but loved ones around them it becomes quite isolating which I think what you're saying there is kind of adds to the problem and can cause people but well not not be the main cause but it can really contribute Mm. to relapse if somebody is feeling quite isolated alone and ashamed if you could say one thing to anybody who might be feeling 
unsympathetic with regards to addiction, obviously, you know, who who, who may not have seen it firsthand and who may have these ideas, like you say, from watching things mm. like train spotting. What would you say to that person? What what would it be? I think it's that if we've learned anything from people who are addicts who are let's say celebrities or high profile people is that money and success are not the things that insulate you from addiction. And what to me what addiction actually is about is a really deep deep personal pain internal pain and that's a complete mix of things like shame and isolation and worry and you know self-worth really mm. if you are looking at how much people sacrifice when they are addicts and the loved ones that they love and that they don't want to hurt but it ends up happening over and over again because of the addiction that they are locked into I would just say dig really, really deep and discover your empathy and understand that no one is doing that willingly. And if no one is doing it willingly or is willing to, you know, sacrifice their entire life, that should tell you something of how unbelievably scary and um, formidable addiction is. And I don't think anyone ever asks for it or is having fun with it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Porna is writing a lot about addiction and stigma. If you follow her on Twitter, you'll often see some of the articles that she's written for the National Press. But if you want to read more about her and Rob's personal story, I strongly suggest checking out her book, Chase the Rainbow. I'm sure you'll find it incredibly inspirational. It's so beautifully written. And I think it makes people who have experienced this or who, who don't really understand it to sort of get behind what addiction really is, understand it and hopefully have a little bit more empathy for people who are really struggling. So thank you so much, Porna, for sharing that with us. It's been great to chat to you. Thank you, Lucy. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. And finally, Lucy caught up with mental health advocate Hope Virgo. Hope, can you tell us a little bit about your experience of anorexia and where did it all begin? So I developed anorexia when I was about 12, 13 years old. And it was something back then I didn't actually know what it was and I didn't think there was anything the matter with me. But I managed to hide it for the next four years. So to me, the anorexia was like having this best friend that I fully relied on. So it was there whenever I needed it, it gave me this value and sense of reassurance that I didn't get from anywhere else. And I kind of longed for that all the time. When I was about 16, my school ended up intervening. And I went to the child adolescent mental health services, and then went through kind of various different services that various different therapists to try and tackle what they kept saying was anorexia. But to me, I still didn't really think there was anything the matter. And then when I was 17, my heart nearly stopped and I was admitted to a mental health hospital where I spent then the next year trying to recover. So learning about food, learning about exercise and learning about kind of the root cause of what they thought might have caused the anorexia. So that must have been really hard. Were you close to family and friends and things like that? Yeah, I was quite lucky. So I was about 45 minutes drive away from my family when mm. it wasn't rush hour. In rush hour, it was a couple of hours. Yeah. Um, at least I was still in Bristol. So I saw my family a couple of times a week and my friends came in kind of every now and again. But it was really difficult kind of being 17 and like going from having complete independence to then being stuck 
in this hospital where I had no control over anything that was going on. I was in a room with girls who were a lot younger than me. So we didn't Mm. have a huge amount in common apart from the fact we all had eating disorders. So Mm. it was really challenging actually trying to grow up and trying to learn kind of how to look after myself when I was kind of given everything that kind of and told exactly what to do and when to do it being hospitalised is never going to be a fun and joyous time but in terms of your recovery did that have a big impact on you? Yeah it did and I think in that sense in a way it was probably a good thing that I hit that complete rock bottom before Mm. anything drastic really drastic happened to me because otherwise I don't think I would have ever accepted there was a problem. I was quite lucky because I had quite a good therapy team and I had one lady in particular called Mandy who halfway through my hospital admission when my weight was a bit healthier, she um, would take me out for these 20 minute runs kind of once every week and it was things like that that actually made my care really good because the running was a huge part of my recovery and I'd obviously been not allowed to do any of it and so that those sort of activities motivated me to keep going and to keep kind of pushing on through my recovery as well. And you don't you don't immediately think of things like that that as part of your recovery and part of your hospital experience you would be doing that that kind of thing so it's it's interesting that it's quite a holistic approach so overall obviously that was really helpful for you and you you kind of moved on from being in a, a place of of denial to really accepting what was happening which I think from reading your story kind of made you realize when some of those thoughts and behaviours were starting to creep back in, but you struggled to access services when you could feel a relapse coming on, didn't you? What what, what happened then? Yeah, so when um, in 2016, after my grandma passed away, I really struggled with all of the grief and the guilt that came with it, and I really blamed myself for a lot of kind of the reasons why she passed away, and had this kind of four-month period where I could feel myself losing that control again, and that kind of anorexic voice back in my head. And it was so frustrating because I knew that at any point I could completely lose that control. And I ended up referring myself to the local mental health trust where I live in southwest London mm. because of the way eating disorder services are done. And I think because there's a huge lack of understanding for people with eating disorders, it meant that because my weight wasn't underweight, there was nothing that could be done for me. And I remember leaving that appointment and just felt at a complete loss. I didn't know what I was going to do and I didn't know how I would ever get better again and kind of be able to get back on that journey to recovery and I had like this four-week period where I just was a complete mess I cried a lot of the time I felt really suicidal I felt like this kind of fake anorexic person that had basically been told they're rubbish at having an eating disorder and they're really fat. It's kind of what you're saying it's about the criteria that is used to access services but I think generally and I'm sure you agree that there is a real stigma around eating disorders that you have to look a certain way or be a certain weight in order to have an eating disorder and it's really not about that is it because it's something you're campaigning on isn't it tell us a little bit about the dump the scales campaign that you're working on at the minute after I got turned away from services a year and a half two years later when I was in a better place in my recovery I started to look into the fact that this often happens and I had lots of people contacting me telling me they weren't able to access support and they were kind of stuck in this limbo period where they were not allowed into outpatients because they were too underweight, but they were too overweight for inpatients. Mm. And so I launched a campaign to try and tackle this. And the problem is the eating disorder guidelines are actually there. And so on the paper it says you cannot turn someone away because of their BMI, because if they're not underweight, they still should be able to access services. And it kind of has it all really plainly laid out. But for some reason, it's not happening across the country. And Mm. it seems totally unfair that, 
it's a complete postcode lottery depending on where you live depending on whether you're a child or an adult and whether people are actually going to start taking you seriously and I think the really frustrating thing is the people with bulimia and binge eating disorder you're less likely to be underweight than people with anorexia so then you're even less likely to have any support available for you but the people with anorexia who are kind of at that point where they're about to lose kind of all of that weight to get underweight and then they try and get support and they're turned away it then kind of kicks in this whole competitive element to anorexia that you have to prove yourself that you're really good at it you want to be kind of that stick thin image that for some reason people think that just because you're not kind of looking like an anorexic person so kind of skeletal and yeah really skinny that actually everything's okay so I think it's whilst it's about changing kind of that criteria and making sure it is implemented across the country it's also about changing that public understanding yeah that actually people can be a healthy weight but still mentally be in a really bad place with their eating Absolutely. And you've you've obviously, you know, you, you've kind of acknowledged just how poorly the illness can can make you because from obviously the time you were hospitalised and the length of your stay, regardless of where somebody's at, if somebody is worried that they might have an eating disorder, are there any really good resources out there? What Where should people turn? Where could they look for really good information? So Beat have a lot of resources available online. They also have um, a kind of online Twitter chat forum, which is really good for support particularly if you don't feel kind of comfortable talking about things very openly. Um, it's also worth flagging kind of a more generic resource called the Hub of Hope, mm-hmm. which if you type your postcode in, it basically gives you access to every single resource and service in your area as well. And also the Mix, which is aimed at more 16 to 24-year-olds, but again has a huge amount of resources available for people with eating disorders, kind of talking a bit about sibling support and everything like that as well. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. That's really helpful. And um, if anybody wants to find out more, as Hope said, that was Beat. Beat was the first organisation that Hope mentioned there. And then uh, Hub of Hope, wasn't it? And if you would like to read more about Hope's story, her book is out now with Trigger Publishing. It's called Stand Tall Little Girl. And if you want to follow Hope's campaign um, and her petition, just follow the hashtag on social media, dump the scales. So thank you so much, Hope. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hopefully that's given us a real and authentic insight into what some of the mental health problems that people live with are like and how they affect people. There's still, or, or I certainly believe, there's still a lot of misconceptions out there about mental health, which is why we're still talking about it. We're still interviewing people, blogging. There's storylines in the soaps. We can't shut up about it until this changes. So I want to say a massive thank you to Anna, Porner, Claire and Hope for any Anyone's listening, if you are concerned about yourself or a friend with regards to mental health, it's worth taking a look at the resources that are available online um, with mental health charity Mind, and that can be found at mind.org.uk. Of course, also GPs are a great first port of call if you're if you're worried about yourself. And if you are concerned about anybody being at crisis point, then do feel free to call the Samaritans. They're hugely helpful and you can contact them on 116123. Standard Issue for All Women.